Thank you, Kevin. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Welcome to GPC. So glad you made your way here. It's always an encouragement to worship with you. If you're listening online later, thanks for doing that. Glad to have you doing that. Um, a great song, uh, Jan and Company, thank you for leading us. Uh, the song written by Hillsong, I believe, I Am Who You Say I Am. We just sang it. If it's new to you, I hope that uh, you're encouraged by it. But it's a very interesting proposition that I am who you say I am, that that is indeed an identity-marking reality, that who God says I am is indeed who you are. It's a great truth. The only problem is we don't actually always believe that, right? I happen to have a couple of uh, daughters who uh, help me sometimes understand social media because, I mean, as awesome as I am on social media, it could be slightly better. And so as I see engagement on social media and learn about that and see how that works and all that, um, I notice if you're on social media at all, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, Visco, I guess, if you're a girl, not if you're a guy, don't get on Visco if you're a guy, but only girls anyway. There are a whole slew of commentary around um, uh, comments about who you are and your identity, particularly pictures that are posted. You, you want more likes and you want more comments, and when girls post pictures, they're very different than when guys post them, right? When girls post them, it's like, oh, you're so cute, oh, you're so hot, oh, you're so beautiful, oh, you're perfect. And the guys are like, dude, that's awesome. Like, I mean, and then move on. Like, you know, is there something I can dislike or move on? But the girls especially continue to, both genders, want the response of, help me understand who I am in this space, and your words will help me know who I am. Because as much as we may sing, I am who you say I am, the truth is I live like I am who you, little y, you say that I am, not you say that I am. I'm not being critical. I'm just recognizing that sometimes all of us can listen to the voices around us or the friends around us or even even the critics around us more than we listen to who God says that we are. And in this series called Identity Crisis, I want to kind of wrap our minds around who in the world are you? Who are you as a human being? Not even first as a Christian, but just as a human being. So it could be that you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not sure about the Christian thing, but I know that I am a human at least. So let's talk about that. So I want to speak to that piece, and I have been last week, and now this week, and for the next three weeks after this, I want to talk about identity crisis. Who are we? How do we understand ourselves and how we see humanity on this side of the world in which we live? And last week, I tried to ask this question, why am I here? What is my purpose? And I tried to answer that question from a Christian perspective, that I think God has put humanity here to image him, that we are made in his image to be little image bearers of God so that people will look at you and look at me and think, oh, that's what God looks like. Looks like you. Looks like her. Looks like him. That's what that looks like. And that we're to express that in love, both to God and to our neighbor. Why am I here? That's what I tried to say last week. See, I could have said all that in one minute, right? This week, I want to ask a different question, and this is the question of what am I worth? I don't know if you have ever phrased this question to yourself in these terms, but I can almost guarantee that you have asked it or you have felt it. The question of value, the question of what are you actually worth? I don't know if I have ever looked in the mirror and said to myself, what am I worth? But I have felt a sense of wonder if, why, if my work matters at all. I have felt the sense of, is what I'm doing worth anything? Are we getting anywhere? Is my efforts in raising my kids actually making a difference? 
I'm now getting into, quote-unquote, middle age. Like, have I done anything with my life to this point? Like, do I have value? Have I brought anything worthwhile to the planet? And what does the next decade, two, three, look like for me? That is the question I want to get under. And here's my assumption, and here's the danger. Unless we talk about it, we often will tie in question of what is my worth and value to question of purpose. We often tie worth into purpose. And this morning, I want to pull them apart. In order to get there, I want to take us to um, a very iconic American tradition. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Price is Right. That's right. What a great moment. So growing up on the mission field as a, as a kid, I came back to the States when I was in high school. And for the first time, I really encountered the Price is Right, and it was monumental for me. It was a game changer. No, it wasn't. It was weird. It was strange. I'm like, what is happening here? They're giving away toasters on TV, and people are jumping up and down about it. The whole thing was weird. But I was mesmerized by the strangeness of it all, and I learned that when people stand up here and the whatever, the you know, they're standing by their little boards of what they're going to guess a price might be. When they don't know what the price is, they turn around and they ask people. And then you hear, you have no way to make out what in the world the couple hundred people are saying in the, in the audience. Because when you don't know what something is worth, you ask people to help you value it, which is exactly how economics works. Economists will say that there is actually actual versus perceived value. Economists will say there is no such thing as actual value of a thing. Everything is perceived value. Which is why if you're looking to buy a used car in something called a newspaper, I think they still print them, or Craigslist or eBay or whatever it is, you will see if I'm selling my, we sold the Jetta, 2003 Jetta a couple months ago, and I sold it, I listed it for $1,200, and then next to that I put OBO. You might know what that means or body odor, that's right, or best offer, because you know, and I know that really the value of my car is not, it doesn't matter what I put on it, it is really a matter of if you don't perceive that to be the right price, you give me an offer, and together we create value around that car, and it might be 800, it might be 1100, it might be less or more, because everything tends to have, not just tends to, everything is perceived value, right? I mean, there's no actual value to my 2003 Jetta that I no longer own. It is all perceived value, which also means this, that there are some times when things that we buy, including that toaster that maybe you went on the prices right, there are times when things that were made for a purpose to toast bread, when they stop toasting, when they stop working, when their purpose is used up, they become worth less. Their value is gone. Because with the things that we buy, their value is threaded right into purpose. It is almost impossible to pull them apart. When our washing machine broke a couple months ago, we got a new one because that hunk of metal in our washroom was a pain when it doesn't work, right? So it is now worth less to me. The problem with this the problem that everything is perceived value and that worth is tied to value is when we shift this thinking from the things that we own to the people whom we interact with and to our very lives itself. This is the transition I want to bring you with. If we have perceived value on people, 
then it is perceived pretty quickly in your company that the president or the CEO who gets paid more than the intern is consequently worth more than the intern. Their purpose is, quote-unquote, greater than the intern. Their perceived value is higher, and we will pay them more. Therefore, they are worth more. You bring more value to us as a CEO than as an intern. At the same time, if we tie value into purpose, I have to ask the question, what of the people in this world who are not able to image God or to express love well? What of those who are born with cognitive disabilities? What of the one and two, three day old babies who cannot love anybody, who cannot express their purpose? Do they have value? To which, of course, we would say, absolutely, why are you asking the question? And the reason I'm asking the question is because I want you to address the issue face on that we must remove value from purpose. When you can't carry out the purpose of what you're doing, my contention is you still have actual value. Christians, I believe, must believe in this thing called actual, not perceived value. Your value is not based on the perception of how many people like your Instagram post or tell you you are hot on social media or give you a raise in your work or tell you how your writing is cool and the influence you have at work, whatever, is awesome. That isn't your value. It may feel good, but it isn't your value. There is an actual, actual, actual value that Christians would say that every human being has. And I want to walk into that with you this morning. And so here's what you may have heard before, if you're a Christian or if you've been around churches before. You may have heard this phrase that the ground is even at the cross. And we get that from Galatians chapter 3 and some other places that, that at the cross, when Jesus died, he just kind of said to everybody, 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 come. Whoever you are, just, just come. And we are together equal and even here. And there, the ground is, quote unquote, even at the cross. There's no hierarchy. There's no CEO and intern. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're, we're equal. I want to take it further than that, and I want to go back further than the cross, and I want to say that the ground is even from the moment we are conceived, from the moment of conception, from the moment of the origin of humanity, this is where the ground is even. Because of your humanness, there's actual value to being human, regardless of your ability to carry out purpose. You have actual value for who you are as a human being, regardless of even your faith persuasion. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in anything, regardless of anything, just for the fact of being human, you have actual, not perceived, but actual value. To make this point, I want to take you to an Old Testament psalm. And uh, we have Bibles in the pew around you. I invite you to, to grab one if you would like, or open up on your phone, whatever you got kind of the middle of your Bible to the Psalms. And I want to look into one particular Psalm, Psalm 139, one of my favorite Psalms um, that I enjoy going to. I want to take you to to try to get underneath what I'm trying to say here. But Psalm 139 is a great Psalm of David um, that we're going to just spend a few moments kind of pulling apart and hopefully making some implications uh, on this issue of value and worth. Again, that Bible is our gift to you in the pew if you don't own one. But Psalm 139, kind of right smack dab in the middle. There's 150 of the Psalms. Find number 139, and we'll be off to the races. 
What I want to do to begin, anytime you open the Bible, anytime you open the scriptures and read, you really need to know what's happening around it, what is the context for what I'm about to read. With the, the story of Psalm 139, I think that what is underneath David's writing of the psalm, what really is driving Psalm 139, which is a beautiful psalm, by the way, but what really is behind it is what he reveals in verses 19 to 22 of his psalm. So instead of beginning at the beginning, I want to begin in verse 19, and then I want to come back to verse 1 to help us see how it leads up to verses 19 to 22. So here's verses 19 to 22, again, reading from the NIV. If only you would slay the wicked, O God... Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Isn't that wonderful? What a great passage of Scripture. If you need a life verse right here, I mean, this is incredible. What's your life verse? If only God would slay the wicked, you know. Away from me, you bloodthirsty man. I mean, this, this is, this is kind of, uh, this is not kind of, this is just unfiltered raw from, from David. Like, he's just, let me put, take the filter and put it over here. God, I want you to kill the people that I hate. All right, do you mind doing that for me? Like, can you not just, like, help me win the deal? Like, I want you to kill the people, okay? Like, I want those people dead. I hate them. Man, I know they hate you too, but that's why I hate them. And this is what I, I want. So if you've ever been, been wondering... <laughs> Does the Bible ever deal with real emotion? Yep, yep. And here's David. He's the king of Israel, for goodness sake. He's the king. He's the one who is in charge of the nation of Israel. He's the one whom God has made a covenant with. God has said to him, here's a man after my own heart. And here's David saying, I want the people who are my enemies dead. God, do you mind being my hit man? And here's the people. I'll give you my list. Here they are. They're bloodthirsty. They're after you. They're after me. Do you mind killing them all? How does he get there? Let's go back to verse 1, how he begins. Because I think David sits down to write. And I don't know all of what's in David's mind, but this is how it begins. It begins rather innocuously. It begins rather safely. It begins very beautifully. In fact, most times you hear Psalm 139 referenced, people stop at verse 18 and pick it up again in verse 23 and hope that you miss verses 19 and 22 or he wants to kill everybody. Okay? It's a beautiful section as he opens up in verse 1, and it, it belies the deeper truth of what is really, this psalm is really driving after. So he opens up in verse 1. O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. This is the big idea that he fleshes out for the next several verses. I, th- I think David is anxious about his enemies. I think he's worried about his future. I think he doesn't know what will come, and I think he sits down to write to almost invite God to remind him, who, who am I and who are you and do you still remember me? Because right now I have people who want me dead and it feels like you don't care. Oh Lord, you have searched me and, and you know me. Then he goes on, verse 2, I'm going to read 2 to 12 in one section here. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I mean, if I were to go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
Arise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the, the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Pause it right there. This is beautiful, beautiful poetry, beautiful imagery, but this is also terrifying I mean, you and I can hide from just about everybody, even the people sitting right next to us, even the people whom we love, even the people who think they know us the best. And this is the terrible truth about each one of us. Oh, we can hide and we are very good at doing it. And we can get away with things for a while. And you may not know the person whom you love is doing something or thinking about things or whatever. I mean, we can hide from just about everybody. And then David goes on and tells us, actually, there's one who you can't hide from. Like, where would you go? How far could you have to travel? Even if you were to go to the darkest room to eat the cookie you're not allowed to eat. <laughs> hey, God's going to see that one. He's going to be there. He's going to be present. And it's both terrifying and comforting at the same time. David understands the intimate knowledge that God has of him. Which also makes you wonder, why don't you take care of the problems that I have? Which is what's underneath David's struggle, and as he writes this, I think. And why does God know us this well? Look at verse 13. The reason that God knows us this well, that he discerns our going out and lying down, he knows the words on our tongue, is because he created, here's what David says, verse 13, the for, the reason why you know me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The assumption is made by you. You as a creator have put me together. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ahead of me ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As a result of this, he leads into the next couple of verses. But before you, I will read 17 and 18, I want you to think for a minute. Think of the most recent book you have read or the most recent book that you have enjoyed. For some of you, you might need to think back about 43 years, but that's okay. But think of if you had the opportunity to be on vacation, you could meet a favorite author of yours. Or if you're, um, you know, if you're into watching movies or, or TV sitcoms or whatever, someone who's a producer who's produced your favorite show or your favorite movie or an actor you enjoy, someone who you often don't have a chance to interact with, but you've enjoyed their work. And you run into them at Starbucks. You run into them when you're going to Panera. You run into them on, on, on the road somewhere. You have a chance to talk to them. Imagine what you would ask them. Like, you wrote the book. Like, I wondered, how could you do this? The character development in this. Like, who do you, what's going to happen next? Why did you think this way? And all of a sudden, you have a chance to interact with somebody who has created something that you have fully enjoyed. But you realize they know more about how this was created than I do. And I want to know what they think. Because their thoughts matter to me because they have created something beautiful. This is why David says next, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. Your, th your thoughts. You have created me. You have created this work of me. I'm with you now. Your thoughts then matter to me. I have a chance to sit with you and have you tell me what's going on. So 
How precious to me are the thoughts that you have, O God, because you have made me and known me so intimately. You know my past and my future. I want to know what you are thinking. How vast is the sum of your thoughts? Right, I count them. They are number the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Like I'm right here, and you have so many thoughts, God. Your thoughts matter to me. Because here's what I'm really worried about, God. If only you, verse 19, if only you would slay the wicked. If only you would take care of my problems. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Because God, I want to know. I want to know. Why are they still alive? If you know the trouble that they put me through. I want to know why you are thinking what you are thinking. And I find the opening of verse 19 very telling. In the NIV, the translators say, if only you, if you read the ESV or New American, other versions, they might say it differently, that oh, that you would, or whatever. Either way, it expresses, and this is the important part, it expresses a desire that is not going to be fulfilled. God, I want you to, but underneath it, I know you're too good to do this. It's a desire that won't be fulfilled. Oh, that you would. It is an appeal. Oh, I wish you would. Oh, it would be so much easier if you would kill the people whom I hate. Oh, it would be so much easier if you'd take care of my dirty work for me. Oh, it would be so much easier if I didn't see them anymore in the grocery store. Oh, it would be so much easier if I weren't going to school with them anymore. Oh, it would be so much easier if my enemies weren't here. Oh, that you would. And it's a yearning for something that will not happen, and David knows it. But he puts his heart out there and says, oh, that you would. And why won't he? Because God knows, and David knows it too. Not only is David fearfully and wonderfully made, his enemies are fearfully and wonderfully made too. The people whom he hates the most have also been knit together in their mother's womb. The God who made him also made them. Which is why I think David finishes, finishes with a confessional. Verses 23 and 24. The confessional only makes sense, in my opinion, coming off of this. He says, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, like maybe something that doesn't line up with what you really want. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way that you would lead. Why would he put this in here? Why is this comment about, see if there's any offensive way in me in here? Because I think David is having a confessional moment to say, God, there are people in this world whom I hate. I would rather have them dead. Not just even not be around, gone. And oh, that you would. God, I wish that you would take revenge like I want you to now. God, Correct me. Correct me. If there's any offensive way in me, before I close this psalm and before I write this off, I'm under you, God, so correct me if there's anything wrong in what I'm seeing or how I see the world. And this is why. This is so hard for me and so hard for you, I think. Or for all of us. 
that even our enemies have value because everyone created by God does. Everyone created by God does. That the ground is even, not just at the cross, but at conception. That as soon as a human being is made, regardless of anything else, the ground is even. That why isn't it that God doesn't wipe away all the people whom David wants him to wipe away? I mean, good grief, David is a man after God's own heart. Why not? David. They've been made like you have. They've been fearfully and wonderfully made. But God, they entered our country illegally. But God, they don't speak our language. God, they're of a different race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Yep. God, they're after my business. They're after my family. Yep. God, my ex is trying to kill my character. My kids are rebelling against me, and my spouse wants nothing to do with me. Not privately. Yeah. Oh, that you would clean up our lives. Oh, that you would make things easier. Oh, that you would get rid of the people that I don't want here. Oh, that you would. Yeah. God says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But everybody... Everybody has been fearfully and wonderfully made too. You know, I asked this question at the beginning. What am I worth? What is my value? How do I know it? It's a question not just of you, but for everybody. It is a question for you. It's a question I want you personally to ask. I would love for you personally to answer. What am I worth? What am I worth? What is my value? There actually is, believe it or not, an answer to this question that goes beyond Psalm 139, although I think Psalm 139 is foundational to understanding. God has placed value in everybody. Everybody. Actual value from conception. But there's an answer that goes further than that, and it's found in the New Testament. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, You, you, are not your own. You were bought at a price. Someone paid something for you. There's a value put on you. You're worth something very particular. And in Romans 5.8, you've heard me say this before if you've been around, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Christians teach and believe, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So here's what I say, that you are worth, you're worth the life of God. What are you worth? Here's what the Bible teaches. You are worth the life of God. That God himself in the second person of the Trinity, that Christ, Christians believe, God himself would come to die for you. You are worth the life of God. Your enemy is worth the life of God. The illegal immigrant is worth the life of God. Some different race ethnicity is worth the life of God. The unborn child is worth the life of God. The, The one who wants to tear me down is worth the life of God. Those who are far from me are worth my life. 
This is God's message to you. Your life is not the perceived value of what people think of you on social media or how beautiful you think you are when you look in the mirror, how strong you think you will end up being. Those are perceived things that change. Please, please, please do not get caught up in and lost in the lie that you have perceived value or that your value is tied to your purpose. As long as I can do something, as long as I can be successful in my career, I'm going to have purpose. Then I stop and I retire and then I wonder what in the world is happening with my life. Am I worth anything? Yes, you are worth the life of God. And I don't want you to spend your whole life chasing down a value judgment of yourself that just simply isn't true. So you, you, you are worth the life of God himself. And so are your enemies. And so are your political opponents. And so are your business competitors and your family tensions. Worth the life of God. So here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I would love for you to take this concept, to write this down, to remember this, to fill in this blank with some words this week. Whether you remember it, you take a picture of it, you write it down, here's what I'd love for you to do. In this blank, worth the life of God, consider this. My ex is worth the life of God. What would happen if you saw that and you wrote that, you meant that? My ex is worth the life of God. My parents are worth the life of God. My children are worth the life of God. My spouse is worth the life of God. I don't know about this one. My boss is worth the life of God. My enemies. And this one. Please, this one. I am. I am worth the life of God. You were bought at a price. That price was nothing less than the price of Jesus Christ. You said, that's the value that I'm going to place on you. Because I made you. That is the actual value of a life. So please, 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 do not lose your life chasing purpose for meaning. Do not lose your life chasing the feedback from the people around you. Know that you've been made to image God, to love well, but that your actual value, your actual value is this. You were made and you were bought at a price. You were worth the life of God. And what would it look like if I began loving the people I work with, the people at school, through this lens and through this grid as people like me who are worth the very life of God? Next week, I want to talk with you about what we're made of and how that impacts how we see ourselves. I invite you to come back for part three of Identity Crisis. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning and to come around some principles and some truth about who you have made us to be. I pray that as we wrestle with the struggles and the tensions of this life as we see it and the people whom we most vehemently disagree with and struggle with and wish were different in positions of power or authority or influence in our world. 
that you would help us to, to come at it in the same way with the honesty of King David. This is what I would wish. I wish these things would be different, but God, search me. Search me and see if there's anything wrong in my heart that I can be led in the way everlasting, the way that you would have me to see this world, that indeed you have died for everyone because everyone has actual value. Everyone. So I pray that you would give us the courage both to see our enemies the same way, but also to see ourselves in this way. So for those who are struggling with value, feeling now like their lives are a little bit worthless, feeling unsure based on how they're being treated in their friend group at school, or how they're coming to the end of their career, or maybe their health is taking them down a road that they didn't expect to be on, they're feeling useless, they're feeling worthless, they're feeling less impactful. I pray that you would reorient us to this truth that we are who you say we are. And we are children of you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and making us as you have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.